Good morning, everybody. Uh, great to see everyone here this morning. Uh, my name is Tim. Uh, I'm an associate pastor here at the firehouse. A lot of our members are at the south side today as well. Uh, once a month over the fall, we're hoping to kind of see what might happen down in the south part of town. If we can jumpstart a little group going down there. So that's where they're at. I actually had an experimental joke to share with you, but after hearing Nez, I decided against it. Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, but anyway... Uh, today we're going to embark on a new series just for the month of October. Uh, so an October series. I'm not sure if we have a name for it yet though or not. So I can't tell you its name. But I think by the end of the month you'll know. So just keep coming out every Sunday. And it is on finances. Uh, that's the topic. And so it's one that uh, maybe once a year we try to address. And I'm looking forward really today just simply laying a foundation for the message messages to follow. Uh, Greg and Rich and Dennis, uh, Brad, I'm not sure who all is going to cover which messages, but uh, in this series. And uh, next month, we're really looking forward to the series on heaven. Uh, really eager to hear some of the thoughts shared in that topic. So uh, I thought I'd begin today by just uh, giving a little update of my family photo. Uh, we used to be eight of us, now there's just three of us. <laughs> but there's uh, Julie, Fiona, and myself down in Phoenix, Arizona at last chance. This is buying Fiona some clothes going into the new year here. And uh, I thought I might give you a little story about uh, Julie and I getting together. Uh, don't always do that, but uh, you know, uh, we were in Florida at uh, trying to get a little church established at the University of Florida campus in Gainesville. We spent 10 years there. Uh, that's really where we met. And one, one time, I think it was a Christmas break, we both decided to go home to Iowa. There's about four of us that drove back to Iowa together. And Julie's uh, farm is about 40 miles north of where I grew up. And uh, so I went and drove up and just spent an afternoon. And uh, her brother and her mom and I played a game of life. You know, where you got to get children and stuff like that and kids in a profession and everything. And it was kind of neat. I never saw Julie's dad the whole day. And later he told me after we were engaged, he said, Tim, I, you know, if I knew you guys were going to get engaged, I wouldn't have done what I did that whole afternoon. Uh, I would have played life with you guys. And I said, well, I know, Harold, but, you know, the doghouse didn't need to be repaired. So I understand. Uh, but anyway... Uh, and then another important woman in my life uh, is this lady here. And I've shown this picture to folks before. But of course that little girl is my mother who is here today. Uh, Edith over here at Kavanaugh if you get a chance to meet mom. Uh, Rob even made the comment today, mom, when you walked in. Tim must be speaking today. So, <laughs> so mom often tries to make it when I'm on here. So, But behind mom standing up is my, my grandmother. And to my mother's right is my great-grandmother. Uh, she's holding a lily in the one arm that was functioning. Her left arm was not uh, able to function due to a stroke. But I always thought that's an amazing picture. And both my grandmother and great-grandmother homesteaded South Dakota. They each made claim on 160 acres. And that was a tar paper shack that uh, mom grew up in. Really, felt, I think she probably for another nine years they lived in this area before moving to Lead. But again, if you get a chance to meet my mom over here, uh, she'd love to see you as well. 
today we're going to start the series. I call today's message a Malachi moment. And Malachi, you may think of as a very strange word, and indeed it is. It's the name of the last book of the Old Testament. But I'd like to give you a kind of an overview of that book because I think it serves as a good foundation for the beginning, anyway, of a series on finances that we want to take a look at here this month. And I hope that all of you will have a Malachi moment today before you leave here this morning. Uh, you might. You never know. So we'll see. But what do you say we pray and just ask God to guide our time here today and uh, we'll take a look at what it means to have a Malachi moment. Lord, I want to thank you for this day. Lord, we're here today because you... You've willed it so. And Father, we look to you as our Heavenly Father who created us. It says in the Bible how you have a plan for us. Uh, Lord, we're just grateful that you do love us. You do have a plan for us. In spite of all the circumstances and challenges we face in our life, we know that uh, there's no one closer to us than you. There's times we drift in that relationship from you. We know we're wayward. We tend to be. We're prone to be. Uh, God, we just pray for moments to return to you, uh, to renew and refresh, or even to come to you for the first time. Lord, we just pray for those opportunities here to, to turn back and always renew our walk, our relationship with you when that needs to be done. And God, we just pray that we can learn from uh, what you revealed to Malachi to write down in this book of Malachi for our benefit. Help us to learn lessons we need to learn from that today. And so God, we just do commit this day to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a number of years ago, I had the wonderful privilege, and Mom made it possible uh, to go to Israel, and uh, it was a trip of a lifetime. Mom and I went together and uh, toured the Holy Land. Mom's idea, I think, in that was uh, to have somebody who could carry her bags, and uh, I was more than happy to do that, uh, you know. I just wish she had even more bags that I could carry. But uh, also, if I could then lead a group, any further travel groups, in the future. She thought that might help jumpstart that. And a few years later, uh, I did get a group together, about a dozen folks, went to Israel and down to Egypt as well. A lot of us here from uh, the Firehouse or Valley View, some from back home, went with me on this trip. And one of the, the most amazing things about that trip, this, this next trip where we went down to Egypt, was, was being in Egypt. And I never really realized that Egypt is only about 20 miles wide. Pretty much what you see in this aerial view of Egypt is, is really what uh, you realize when you went to Egypt is that it's about as wide as 10 miles on each side of the Nile River. And that is Egypt. 99% of every Egyptian lives in that 20 mile width of land. That's very fertile land. Uh, there's uh, crops being raised there year-round. The Nile River flows upward and then uh, fans out into different rivers before it flows into the Mediterranean Sea. That's called the Nile Delta. And uh, that Delta area used to be called Goshen. And that's when uh, where Abraham and his people were sent to when... Um, 
uh, or Jacob and his people were sent to uh, when they were, were in the beginning years of their captivity in Israel. They went to the land of Goshen. It was really one of the most fertile areas. And when I was there in Egypt, Julie and I, I actually had one foot in that barren, desolate desert and I could put one foot in the Nile River Valley. It was just that much of a demarcation between the desert and that Nile River Valley. It was just an amazing thing to behold. And a night view kind of gives you a good sense of that also. Uh, you can see where all the lights are. That's where all the people live. Now there are a few lights here and there out in that desert, but not very many. So again, probably 95 to 99% of all Egyptians live in a very narrow strip called the Nile River Valley. That river, uh, their lives depend on that river. Uh, it always has for thousands of years. And that's why uh, we were taught about the Fertile Crescent when we were kids in elementary school. We were told that that was the birthplace of civilization. Were you all told that in school as well? And that was just one leg of that Fertile Crescent here, the Nile River. And it would come up the Nile River and then it would cut across along the Mediterranean coast above Mount uh, Sinai Peninsula there. And then it would go right up past Israel and uh, right up to the Euphrates and the Tigris River Valleys. And then it would come down that Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, an area known as Mesopotamia. That's a Greek word. Meso means between. Potamia means river. Uh, it's where the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. gets its name. It's the Greek word for river. And so there you have the Fertile Crescent. The Nile River coming up over down the Euphrates. That's the blue E. That arrow points to the Euphrates. You can't really see it very well. And then that blue T arrow points to the Tigris. And those two rivers come down. And just like the Nile River, just like what you saw in that previous picture, this Mesopotamia was rich. And there was tons of people that lived there. And as you'd expect, that was the birthplace of civilization. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, we know the demarcation of the Garden of Eden. And that always amazes me. But we know that it was bordered by four rivers. One was the Euphrates. One was the Tigris. And two others were rivers we don't know where they're at. The, the uh, uh, Pishon and Gihon, I think. And those two rivers, for example, then constitute the northern and southern border of the Garden of Eden. Now, we don't know where in Mesopotamia the Garden of Eden was. For example, if the two rivers, Pishon and Gihon, were here and here, then the Garden of Eden would be right there. But again, we don't know just where those cross rivers were, but this was indeed the birthplace of civilization going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And this river area where people first began to settle, those two rivers come together at Al-Kurna, a city today, at the, at the confluence of those two rivers. And then there's this river, the Shat al-Arab. It's a 125-mile river that then takes the Euphrates and Tigris River waters down, straight down to the Persian Gulf. And as you might expect, being the birthplace of civilization, the first great world empire came from Mesopotamia.
Up there in the northern part of Mesopotamia is where the Assyrian Empire started, about 1800 B.C. That was 200 years after Abraham. Abraham was 2000 B.C. So up there in that northern river waters, the head uh, waters of the Euphrates and the Tigris, is where the Assyrian Empire started. And that Assyrian Empire advanced down Mesopotamia to the Persian Gulf, conquering that area. They also advanced down the Mediterranean Sea Line all the way through Israel. They conquered Israel and they went all the way into Egypt. So Assyria became the first great empire of this area. Now in this area, and again, uh, this was before the Assyrian uh, Empire by 200 years, on the Euphrates River, down near what is now Kuwait, you'll see that red dot there, that's Ur, the, the city or town of Ur. And that's where Abraham was from, the father of the Israeli nation. And God told Abraham to go up the Euphrates River. And basically he followed the Fertile Crescent. He followed that red line from Ur up the rivers, right down the Mesopotamia area, across down over to the Mediterranean Sea, and then down to Israel. He settled there then in Israel. And his twelve sons became the twelve tribes of what became the nation of Israel. And this was the verse that God gave Abraham when he was living in Ur to go to this place he was showing, this nation now we know as Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. And by the way, Genesis chapters 1 to 11 is world history. That's about the whole world. The beginning of languages, the beginning of nations, the beginning of sin, the beginning of man. But in Genesis chapter 12, 1, the whole Old Testament now becomes the story of a nation. The story of a nation that comes from this man, Abraham. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, which was then Ur of Chaldees, from your family and from your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you And in you, all the families, including us here in this room, many of us who become believers in a descendant of Abraham, Jesus, he said, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's the beginning, the foundation of the nation of Israel. And this great nation was given a great purpose. And it wasn't really a nation that God chose as his own people, his chosen people, at the exclusion of the world. No, God chose this nation of Israel for the benefit of the world. Here's a great verse on that in Psalm 67. God be gracious to us, bless us, cause your face to shine on us, that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among the nations. God wanted a people that he could have a, a real close relationship with, a covenant relationship with, known as Israel. A chosen people that would really demonstrate to the world what it would be like to have this relationship, this special relationship with God. And it would be so, not just as an end to itself, but as a means to the end of bringing God's salvation to all the nations as they look to Israel. In fact, remember the story of the Queen of Sheba. She came from an African country, probably Ethiopia, but she traveled all the way to see the grandeur of Solomon and how here he was, a follower of a God. She was so impressed by his God 
that what we call Coptic Christians today probably descend from her. Because she probably became a follower of the God of, of Solomon. And so it's an amazing story, amazing history. This little nation of Israel, the whole Old Testament from Genesis 12 on, is all about this nation of Israel with this great purpose. But because it had this great purpose, it had a great responsibility also. And sometimes this nation, as we read throughout the whole Old Testament, became wayward, they began to drift from God, they began to turn from God. Sometimes they even began to worship false gods. They violated their covenant relationship that God wanted to have with them. And so we read in Amos 3.2, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, Israel. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins, for your iniquities. God wanted them to be a pure and a holy nation. Again, that would be a nation on a pedestal that the world would see. But when they turned in waywardness from God, He would try to correct them. Like any parent would correct their own child who was wayward or went contrary to the values the parents were teaching their kids. And so God said that to Israel, I'll have to discipline you. But you know what, I don't discipline, you know, I don't think any parent here would say that Tim Cavanaugh ever spanked their kids. I spanked my kids, <laughs> but not your kids. I, I don't think I could ever do that. Uh, I don't even spank my kids' kids. <laughs> but, you know, you might discipline your own children is the point, whether it's spanking or telling them they have to sit in the corner for, mom used to do that with me, send me in the corner for, for a few days. Um, uh, or sometimes uh, what she preferred to do was Tim go get a lilac branch off the lilac bush and that worked even better yet I think but you know you only have uh, God wanted this nation to be a, a holy nation you know that could really uh, represent what it was like to have a relationship with God and so that was the purpose of Israel and God was so excited but as time went on even Israel be fell into discord our civil war ended up with, with one nation even at the end of it. But Israel suffered a civil war that caused it to divide. Ten of the twelve tribes went to the north and they became the land of what then was called Israel, the nation of Israel. The two bottom tribes, Benjamin and Judah, they became what was called after that Judah. So now there are two nations where before there was just one nation. And again, in both of these nations, what became Israel, the ten tribes of the north, and Judah in the south, they would constantly go through this cycle of repentance. And uh, you might see that here at the top, and I know the words are small, so I'll read them for you. But at the top square there uh, is the word bondage. And a lot of times Israel would fall into bondage. Uh, maybe you remember the time when the Philistines had control over Israel. Uh, they were in bondage. And then, after a while, they cried out to God in faith. They had what I call a Malachi moment. They returned to God. And they cried out to God uh, in faith. And that led to courage of action. And that courage of action led to, uh, again, restoration and abundance in their life as a nation. But in time, Abundance has this terrible, terrible deadening effect in our soul sometimes. It can. It doesn't have to, but it can, where we grow and move into arrogance and selfishness. 
And that selfishness leads then to a spiritual complacency. We really don't need God. He's really not a relationship we particularly care to have, especially if He's going to punishment if we step out of line. You know, we just really don't care about God. We don't care if people know we're up on a pedestal for the world to see anymore. Uh, they went on to, to apathy. And then before long, that apathy will lead right into bondage again, usually by some other country. It was the Assyrians initially, then it became the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire was from Mesopotamia also. It started at the bottom of Mesopotamia and went upward and conquered the Assyrians. And then it went out and conquered even beyond the Assyrians. And then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Even the British had control of Israel during World War I. But this was a cycle of bondage, faith, courage, abundance, selfishness, complacency, apathy, and then bondage again. And then you need that Malachi moment where you return to God. And Israel often did. And they found faith once again. They found that Malachi moment that they needed. And so we have this nation, and Samson was an example. The book of Judges is really a story of seven cycles where seven different judges were mentioned anyway that came up and freed them from the bondage of whatever oppressor they were facing. Samson, as a judge, freed Israel from the Philistines, for example. But he himself uh, needed a Malachi moment too. He himself became apathetic. Samson himself became complacent, didn't he? And after a while, he wasn't uh, really the best judge that you would hope for. And he himself fell into bondage in the hands of the Philistines. And his final act, and it was because of a, a moment, of, a Malachi moment, he found faith, he found courage, and destroyed the building he was in chains under. And it destroyed 3,000 of the enemy, but it also killed Samson, who was blinded by the enemy at that point in his life. And so, as individuals, we go through this cycle. My guess is, in this room, there's any number of us at any one of these points of the of this cycle. And there's all of us probably at some need of, of a Malachi moment, where we return to the Lord, and return to following Him with all of our hearts. Spiritual apathy was warned of when Israel uh, came out of slavery 400 years in Egypt. God said to them, Then it will come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your father Abraham and his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, that land that he brought Abraham from Ur to take, take over what became the land of Israel. He said, That land that I swore to your ancestors to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of good things you did not fill, Hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And you shall eat and be satisfied, and then you'll watch yourself so, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And of course, Israel did forget. And uh, they uh, fell from God. And uh, God then began to raise up prophets. And that's uh, really one way we look at the scripture. Uh, the Bible. The Old Testament really is a story of the nation of Israel, but it's divided into three segments, the Old Testament. One is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books are the Torah, 
the law, kind of the constitution of the nation of Israel in a way. And then you have the writings, which are like the Psalms and the Proverbs, Chronicles, the history books, uh, you know, the Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, some of those books. Those are called the writings. Some are by individuals like Ezra, Nehemiah. Those are writings. And then at the end of the Bible, though, there are the prophets. There's 16 of them. There's the big three prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, They're called major prophets. And then the other 13 are called, um, the other 13 are called uh, minor prophets. And those are all the ones with all those funny hard names to pronounce at the end of your Bible. Malachi is one of them. But you know, really, all of these 16 prophets major and minor, they all have the same job. And that was to help Israel discover a Malachi moment. Help Israel return to God. Help Israel in bondage or in fear of going into bondage or just coming out of bondage. They, these prophets spoke to this nation. In fact, if you look at these 16 prophets, and we're zeroing into Malachi here. I'm kind of giving you a big overview, and I, I'm known to do that. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, two of the prophets, Nahum and Obadiah, they actually were charged with writing to the nations in general. They were writers or prophets to Israel per se. And remember how Israel as a nation was, came from Abraham in 2000 B.C. Moses came around in 1500 B.C. David, 1000 B.C. The nation was divided into two nations, north and south, in 931 B.C. Divided into Israel. And Israel began to go through its cycle of, of repentance, waywardness slash repentance. And so God raised up Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. Those three prophets. And so when you see those books in the end of the New Old Testament, the book to, written by Hosea, the book written by Amos, the book written by Jonah, those three men were assigned Israel, the nation of Israel, the top ten tribes. And they were supposed to write to them in a hope, a last ditch hope sometimes, that they might somehow... Somehow they might uh, have a Malachi moment and repent and return to the Lord. Now there's only three prophets to the northern tribe, or the northern ten tribes, the nation of Israel. Because they, and those three spoke prior to their captivity. They were conquered by Assyria. When it descended and expanded its empire down the coast of Mediterranean, down to Egypt, they conquered Israel at that time. God said that was a judgment against Israel, though. He used the Assyrians for that purpose, because they had become wayward. And now they were into bondage by the Assyrians. And time would pass before they cried out for redemption. Judah, however, uh, they too, about 125 years later, were conquered by the Babylonians, which also conquered Assyrians. But here there is the pre-captivity prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Those prophets spoke to, to Judah. And they were warning Judah, you know, if you, if you guys don't have a Malachi moment, if you guys don't return to the Lord, you guys are going to suffer the same fate that Israel did. And these prophets warned Judah. 
And uh, they also could foresee into the future things as well. There's prophecies of that nature in these books as well. But again, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't to be. Israel did not repent. Israel ended up being taken into the great captivity, the Babylonian captivity, for 70 years. And Jeremiah, he actually spoke before they went into captivity. The book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's personal eyewitness of Jerusalem being destroyed by the Babylonians. That's why it's called Lamentations. He's lamenting the fate of Jerusalem. So he was kind of before and during, as was Daniel. Daniel lived in Babylon Empire. And then Ezekiel, those men spoke during the captivity. And then there was the post-captivity. Cyrus of Persia in 539 came in and conquered Babylon. He allowed Israel to return to Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra, Esther, uh, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai. Some of these people spoke. And of course the three prophets were Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those three prophets spoke after the captivity when Israel had returned. Haggai spoke. His message to the re- nation that returned from captivity was, Hey, look, you guys, uh, you guys have been around here for 20 years now. You need, uh, we really want you to rebuild the temple. And you know you, God wanted you to do that. 20 years has passed and you've still not done it. And I know, you've been busy building your houses. You've been busy paying off your mortgages. You've been busy establishing your business. It's been 70 years, and now you move back into this land. It's going to take a lot of work, I know. But you guys now, it's getting to a point here, 20 years now, one third of a man's life probably, it's getting to a point, or a fourth, it's getting to a point now where uh, you are now becoming complacent and apathetic to the to the responsibilities for God's uh, temple, God's home. And you know, Haggai spoke to people that listened. Here we read, in, just to give you an example, here in Haggai, verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, Haggai writes, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The people were saying, we're not quite ready yet. But in verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and God's temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai continues on, and in verse 12 of chapter 1, it says that Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And they rebuilt the temple. So in that case, they had a Malachi moment. They repented, and they did what God wanted them to do. That's a Malachi moment. Doing what God wants you to do. Knowing that that's the way to freedom, not bondage. God kind of lies. I mean, the world and the devil lies to us. And I think sometimes we're left with the impression that following God is the loser way out in this world. You know, that it's not the path to success at all. If you want to be a success, don't let people know you're a Christian. Don't talk about Jesus. And, you know, by all means, don't read your Bible. You know, put God on a back burner. I think sometimes, I think, we can think like that. But again, a Malachi moment is what these people that Haggai wrote to. And all these prophets, Zechariah had his message, Malachi had his message. And that's what we're going to look at today, is Malachi's message. 
And so uh, <clears throat> there was a problem though that Malachi was addressing, really a number of problems. And I'm just going to read you these verses on your handout. They're also on the screen. But they rejected God's love. The priests refused to honor God. There was a family breakdown. They redefined right and called right wrong and wrong right. They robbed God of his riches. They rejected God. And that was the problem that Malachi was given to address with the people of Judah. Haggai had his assignment. Malachi had his. They were different. Haggai's people responded. And they uh, had a Malachi moment. I guess you could say a Haggai moment, really. And they responded and turned back and did what God wanted them to do. Malachi's got a challenge. And he's going to have to try to help the people in his day, in his time, which was probably a time a little bit before Haggai. But he was going to try to help those guys have a Malachi moment. Here in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And it goes on. They kind of reject and spurn the fact that God loved them. Chapter 1, verse 6. As son honors his father, God writes through Malachi. And a servant, his master, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. And so again, God is just pointing out through Malachi this problem where the people have turned away from God, the relationship He wants them to have with Him. In chapter 2, verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves, which is marriage. And they talk about uh, how they uh, basically have uh, resulted in, the things they were doing resulted in a breakdown of marriage and the family. In chapter 2, verse 17, just to give you an overview. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied Him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, Where is the God of justice? In other words, they were saying that everyone who does evil is actually good in the sight of the Lord. They were beginning to redefine good as bad, and bad as good. Um, I, I'm afraid I... Couldn't think of any good examples of that, but I know there's a lot of them out there, even in our world today. You could probably think of them. Let me know after church if you do. In Rot, another one is in chapter 3, 8 through 10. In 8 through 10 it says, Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, In what way have we robbed you? And God says, You've robbed me in your regular giving, your tithes, and in your special giving, your offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you robbed me, even the whole nation. And again, this is another one of the problems. And then it goes on. You've rejected God. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says this. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? And what we have walked as and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. 
This is a, an indictment of the culture that Malachi lived in in his day. Not all that different from the culture even perhaps we live in in our day. But those are some of the problems. It was serious problems. Maybe the two worst problems, they really go hand in hand, were the priests refusing to honor God and then the people robbing God of his riches because the priests, if they were doing their job, they could encourage the people to have a Malachi moment, to turn back to God, to love him. They could teach and encourage the people to re renew their commitment to their family. Uh, they could teach the people what is right and what is wrong. But the people were robbing God of their tithes, their offerings, and then the priests didn't have money to even support themselves. They were not permitted to have a career. They were not permitted to own land. The priests, their job was even more of an honor that they had it was to serve God's people in a leadership capacity, but then it was God's plan that his people support them in that effort. Neither was happening. It could probably get to a point where the people could even say, well, why should we give to God if the priests are so bad and they're not doing their job? It becomes a vicious circle. Someone has to break that circle. They both need Malachi moments. The priests need to repent, need to turn back, need to start doing their job, but the people need to start giving. So that the priests could have the support they need. You know, I've served in full-time ministry for, guys, 25, 30 years. And I'm glad I, my salary does not come from this church now. Because I can stand up here and say this. <laughs> Maybe better than some of the guys whose incomes do. And that is that we are in the same way called as a group of believers. To support those that lead us. And without that support from each of us, our leaders are hamstrung. I know Rich, for example, works one day a week or is trying to build a job one day a week because he doesn't have quite enough to cover his needs. And there's plenty here that gives so graciously and we thank you for that. But there may be some that don't. I don't know. I don't know the giving. But I will say this, uh, for Rich to do his job, it requires that we do ours. And God has created this structure you know, that really is intended to accomplish His purposes on earth. I believe you need two things to accomplish God's purposes on earth. You need people. People like Greg, who left his architectural career to step into the, to lead, help lead us. People like Rich, who left his computer science career to help lead us. They no longer can, say, derive their income from those ways. Now it depends on us. But that's fine because as we commit to giving, not just for their incomes, but even for all the goals and tasks and desires we want to accomplish as a church. But we need those men to step forward in leadership. Uh, we also need money to support them. We need men, we need money to support God's purposes. And God has this plan. And so, again, I would only encourage us to, to think about it. Maybe you have a, a need for a Malachi moment, you know, in the area of giving. Maybe there's another need in your life. Have you ever had this thought, I've become spiritually dull? Have you ever felt that way? I know I have. You need a Malachi moment. Kind of, all of a sudden, it reminds me of that movie I like. Uh, what is that uh, movie with... <clears throat> Will Ferrell and the elf, the elf. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 
You guys thought I had some other movie in mind, like Saving Private Ryan or something like that. Uh, no, the Elf. Uh, remember that scene where she gets upset or something, and he says, "Someone needs to sing a Christmas carol here." You know. Well, you know, someone needs a Malachi moment here, and if we are spiritually dull, we need to repent, and we need to tell God in prayer in our heart, say, "Lord, we really want to return to you." And I want to read the scripture. Or I want to begin to give. I've lost my first love. You need a Malachi moment. You need to sing a Christmas carol. You know, I don't really need God. Maybe you feel that way. No, you need a Malachi moment. You know, most people I know don't know I'm a Christian. Well, you know what? You need a Malachi moment. You know, uh, there's, I have no interest in reading the Bible or listening to the Bible or hearing Bible messages. Well, you know what? You need a Malachi moment. You need a return. Malachi speaking to you. You know, I, I have a grudge. Uh, my spouse has a grudge against somebody. Am I helping her resolve it? Am I resolving mine? If not, we both need a Malachi moment. We need a return. We need to repent because bitterness will only, uh, will only get worse. The root of bitterness defiles many. You know, uh, maybe I don't, do I, I don't give anything financially to our church. Or, or maybe I could give more. You know, you need a Malachi moment. You know, uh, boy, time. I just don't have enough time. It just seems like all, the only thing I can do for God is come to church Sunday morning. And that's about it. You know, that's about as much as I could possibly do. But I understand. I sure do. But maybe you need a Malachi moment to reassess the things you're committed to. I want to play a significant part of what God is doing in the world today. Boy, what a great place. You don't need a Malachi moment. You just need to not forget that you're serving a great God who's going to make a great difference in people's lives and just hold the course if that's where you're at, that you want to play a significant part in what God is doing today. And so... We too need our Malachi moments, just as Israel needed its Malachi moment. And uh, again, that is the solution that, that Malachi gives us in chapter 3, verse 7. And I'll read it for us. God had just gotten done saying in verse 7, uh, Return to me, and I'll return to you says the Lord. But you said, in what way shall we return? And it's interesting. This is how God says it. Of all the problems, he focuses in on the area of giving. And maybe that's what Jesus even uh, meant in the New Testament where he said, you know, that um, where your money is is where your heart is. You know? But here's what happened. Well, uh, God goes on in verse 8. Well, the man robbed God, you've robbed me. Well, what way? Tithes and offerings. Uh, these are the ways that you've actually have robbed God. There is a principle for giving, even in the New Testament. And I want to focus in as an introduction to this subject of giving on one of these problems that Malachi addresses. We went through the whole book, kind of an overview of it. This wasn't the only area he talked about, but it's the one area I'm focusing on for the month of October here as a foundation for our series on, on giving. But it's in this area of giving, I just want to make these points, and maybe Greg and Rich and others will make them in the next weeks. But God does want us to give proportionately of your, of your income. I remember once sharing on this, and the guy said, Tim, I don't know, I hear this word tithe, and he said, but look, Tim, I, 
I have faith for 5%. And I said, well, good. You know, let's start there. I mean, that's wonderful. 